Welcome to the second episode of the Hotbox Podcast. This is a podcast sponsored by the Eastern Canada Division of the NMRA. I'm your host, Greg Williams. I'm interested in talking to model railroaders of all kinds. If you have a story to tell, I invite you to send me an email, and perhaps we can have a chat through Skype for the podcast. You can reach me at gregw66 at hotboxpodcast.ca. While we're at it, this episode and every episode is available at our website, hotboxpodcast.ca. We're also on most of the podcast directories. A visit to our site will offer you a list of links. Today we have a talk with Clark Kooning. Clark is a master model railroader and has served the NMRA in a variety of positions. He is a big promoter of the hobby and the NMRA and instrumental in getting me to join back up a few years ago. Clark and I had a great conversation and we have so much more to talk about, I'm sure he'll be on another episode in the future. So here it is, my conversation with Clark Kooning, MMR. Really, what I'd like you to do, Clark, is just just tell us about start at the beginning, you know, <laughs> as as they always do in the, in the profiles of model railroaders and in all the different media, how you got into this fantastic hobby. As a kid, now we all, most of us start with a tro- toy train set, but tell me about your experience. Well, basically, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head. Um, when I was about two, five years old or so, I, I, my dad was really good with my brother and I. Uh, he would take us out and we'd go at, to the end of the runway here in Toronto and, uh, and watch aircraft take off and land and um and every once in a while he'd take us to the end of a road where canadian national had a small yard and we watched the trains he was always fascinated by big uh, machinery and i think my brother and i got that that bug as well and uh my dad was also into big into sports so we also got that trait but the big machinery, and I think railroading in particular, just struck me. And I remember when I was just a little guy uh, saying to my mom and dad, you know, I really want a, a train. And uh, so my dad happened to see an ad in uh, the local paper about a model railroad for sale. And he thought, oh, perfect, you know, something used that's, you know, go from there and he phoned the lady, and uh, they talked on the phone, apparently. Uh, I wasn't around. She wanted way too much money. So anyway, my dad we just simmered, and and uh, it was towards the end of the summer when my birthday was coming up, and apparently uh, she phoned because she didn't have any takers and basically made my dad a ridiculous offer. And my dad went and picked it up, and I remember... Uh, my mom and dad uh, saying, come on down to the basement, and we go in the laundry room, and there was this train set. It was a Lionel, you know, train set and a uh, big steam engine and the big, you know, monster <laughs> uh, throttle. 
and it was basically a loop of track with a couple passing sightings and that was that was it i was i was hooked and we a lot of family friends of my mom and dad uh one particular fellow in particular worked for the railroad and he would give my dad his conductor's hat every year and i probably still have six of the cpr conductors hats oh, here that's at, cool here yeah. at, and this fellow it was very interesting um he was actually chosen to be the chief conductor for the royal train oh wow and matter of fact the story goes that at one time my this fellow phoned my dad and said Hey, can you come over? I got two guys following me. My dad says, what? He says, just come over. He says, I don't know what these guys are doing, but they're sitting outside my house. So my dad went over and they, he went in the house and talked and then he came out and he went right to the car and said, what are you two guys doing? And the one guy holds up his badge and the other guy was the rcmp and the one fellow was from the british secret service oh wow and what they were doing was checking this fella out to see if he was you know i mean they didn't have they didn't have uh modern surveillance like they do today you know to to Mm. background check so they really had to follow you around and they said oh we're just checking to make sure he's a good guy so he can <laughs> run be the conductor on the royal train and my dad says oh you won't get any better guy and uh he ended up being the conductor for the royal train for uh, canadian pacific that's fascinating what a great story yeah yeah what a great story and so anyway uh um as i got into running this lionel train um i tried to do stuff matter of fact i still have that train and the track it's in a box and i happened to open it up oh i guess a couple years ago after we moved to our new home here in elliott lake um because i didn't know what was actually in the box and i opened it up and i realized what it was and here is a new york central god-awful blue uh lionel gondola car that i attempted to weather (laughs) And I went, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I ruined that car. (laughs) So, anyway, I put it back in the box and taped it all up. And uh, it's sitting uh, underneath my current railroad. But uh, um, I went, oh, man, I really come a long way. (laughs) Five years old. Well, you know, at five, you know, you got a lot. At least you've got a lot of uh, room to grow. (laughs) Yes, yes. So what made you move from that that Lionel setup into scale model railroading? What was that? What happened there? There was a there was a a lull in the hobby because we had moved or my family had moved homes and we really didn't have um, sort of the space for it. And in this home, it was a I guess you'd call it a backsplit and it had a, a crawl space in it. And when I was about 12, 12 or 13, I happened to pull out this train and I talked my dad into taking me in the old station wagon down to the lumber store and he bought me a sheet of plywood and we actually set 
the new train table up in the in the crawl space. Now, when you're only 12 or so years old, you know, the crawl space was this immense great land. Mm. And my dad put in some lighting in there for me. And um, so, you know, but it was only like four feet tall. So you were hunched over all the time where I finally got a chair with wheels on it and I could just <laughs> wheel around. <laughs> and I, and I, and I cleaned all the track that I had, uh, the lino track and I was running lino trains. And then it was just, you know, large scale. So then I started looking around and there was a, a little, um, variety store, not, well, it was, it was some distance, and of course, not driving. I would ride my bike over there. And he had an N-scale layout in the window. Mm. And he had a little hobby shop sort of area that he where he sold model railroading equipment. And it was probably in a space of about 12 by 12 in the back of his store. And that really spurred me on to getting into scale model railroading. So I got into N-Scale, and uh, again, my uh, mom and dad got me an N-Scale set uh, for Christmas, and I ran that around, and then I could ride my bike. Now, in the winter, I didn't go, but in the summer, I would ride my bike to this little variety place and, and buy track and do all kinds of stuff. Well, eventually, um, I had built probably two four by eights and then i had a shelf layout that went oh i would say 28 feet long by two feet wide and i (laughs) drilled right into the to the foundation or into the the walls and mounted them with brackets and finally my dad and he didn't go down there much he'd he'd go what are you doing i see you taking all this stuff down and by that time i was around 14 or so and i said well you should come down and see what i'm building so he came down and he goes oh my god (laughs) (laughs) so i got this huge railway and uh in the crawl space and um my dad just laughed and he goes okay carry on and (laughs) Aww. And he says, how did you get all this stuff down? I said, well, you know, I carried on my bike. He goes, oh, my God. He says, so um, now a couple of the sheets of plywood we had in the garage, and I just used all that. But uh, it was funny. And and then later on, like, people would come over and visit with my mom and dad, and my, they'd say, oh, Clark, what are you into? And I'd say, well, model trains. My dad said, you have to go down to the crawl space. He says, <laughs> it's like a dungeon down there. He says, but you got to go see what he's doing. So I went, people would come down and they, they come up and I'd hear them because the family room was right above the uh, crawl space. And, and I hear them going, how does he know all that electrical stuff? How does he know? And my dad says, I have no idea, <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite funny. So we had built that. And then my at that point, I mean, as I grew up, uh, you know, I was still going into the basement, underneath the basement at 20. And then my mom and dad uh, uh, decided they were going to move back to Winnipeg. And that's where they uh, 
were born and raised. So I stayed because I was in uh, college for becoming a paramedic, and I stayed and said, well, I'm going to stay and finish my course, and we'll see what happens. So they moved, so I had to take on all this railroad stuff <laughs> and uh, box it all up, and I put it in a little bit of a storage unit, and then uh, I got involved with an HO modular club uh, when I was going to college, and a uh, really good group of guys, and that led me into the NMRA. These guys were just starting to get involved with the NMRA themselves as a group, and uh, we went to Ottawa for a convention um, that was uh, a lot of fun. And one of the guys said, hey, why don't we run a convention? And uh, so that was the start of, of the NMRA for me. And we, we ran a, a, a fun convention in Oakville, Ontario and uh, a regional during the convention i had just gotten a new camera and i was taking a lot of pictures and some guy guy named pete moffett who is a was at the time i think the vice president of the region said to me hey he says you want to put that camera to use i said yeah sure and he says uh, can you take all the pictures or take pictures of the model contest so i did and then uh, once uh, I had the pictures, and then this is the day of film, mm. um, I sent them to the editor of the uh, the uh, Niagara Frontier Region newsletter, and he published them as the winners from the contest from the convention. And at that point, uh, I became the regional photographer for the, <laughs> for the region. <laughs> and uh, then as I got more involved with them they they asked me to uh do something else and then i got in, a little bit involved with the contest stuff and then all of a sudden i was the vice president wow and then i became the president <laughs> <laughs> and um of course all through that period of time i mean i was i had gotten married and and started a family and mm. and uh and so forth. So, um, and I was working as a as a paramedic in uh, just outside of Toronto in the Mississauga area. So we, so I got involved and became the president, and uh, that was uh, a lot of fun. And we really had a, a terrific board that really put a lot of emphasis in in education and so forth. That's that's how I got into sort of the NMRA at that point. Right. Well, I, I, that was I was going to ask that question later in the podcast, but since you've gone there, um, you said you held president of the uh, of the region. Uh, what other positions have you held within the NMRA? Well, a few. I did the. I was the president, and then at, at that point, um, the president was also the NMRA. Uh, board of directors so if you were the president you were on the board for the national and so i would go to the national meetings and represent the the niagara frontier region during that time the board was so unwieldy we had a member from every region which is 17 plus we had area um, reps we had and it was just huge it was a huge board there was like uh, 
I'd say close to 30 people when it was hard to get a consensus. It was hard to. So Charlie Getz um, at the time proposed that we make the board smaller and make it more, much more efficient. And we had a couple of sort of planning meetings uh, that I was asked to be involved in. And, and it came down to basically going to nine NMRA board members. So we did that, and uh, it's made, made a huge difference in how well the board can uh, can be efficient. So I was involved as the director for that. And then when that happened, the president uh, was split, and NMRA Canada came into being. Right. Um, almost at the same time. I won't say it was within a few years so NMRA Canada came into being and about and, what year was that um that would have been uh 2002 2004 in that time frame okay and we we developed this new board system and um NMRA Canada was going to be a separate identity. And that was the other thing. There was uh, myself, a fellow named Steve Stark from the UK, and another gentleman uh, from Australia. And we came up with the idea that we would basically franchise um, the NMRA in our countries. Mm. And uh, the NMRA at first was kind of, mm, we don't like that idea, but they came around to it and we got that approved. So therefore now we have the United Kingdom has their own sort of identity. We in Canada have NMRA Canada and Australia has NMRA Australia. Right. What that did, it, at the time, the exchange rates were so high, it was costing $120 Canadian. Um, I forget what the price was in the UK, and, and the it was like $140 in Australian money to become a member of the NMRA. It was just crazy. Yeah. And uh, we thought if we took the some of the things in-house – and did it in our own country, we could at least get the basic membership to a very reasonable level. And then, of course, the magazine would be costed out at the cost of getting it to, to a person. That, that just had to be. So that's how we figured it out, and uh, it's worked out really, really good for, for all us, I'll say, foreign members um it has made a world of difference and then so i was on the board and when it got split into NMRA canada i became the NMRA canada president and represented canada on the NMRA board for oh a number of years and then we brought in term limits which i thought at first i i was sort of against it because one of the things that you lose somewhat with term limits is corporate memory. And when you don't have people that have been around for a long time, you you lose things that you have previously done. 
right um or have tried and didn't work or it did work and you know and so that that to me was a real big issue but then the more i thought about it and 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 it happened to me and well i'll mention that as i go along that eventually you just run out of ideas and run out of steam so that is no good either so by putting in term limits of uh, basically six years um so you get two terms of three um and then you're out now you can come back after a term if you decide to run again but um you you basically have to take a hiatus for at least three years so i thought uh after a while that that was correct and i termed out and and then I did run for uh, vice president of the overall NMRA, which I did. Uh, I did win, and I was the vice president for the NMRA for for one term. At the towards the end of that term, people were asking me, "You're going to run for president?" And this is what happens after almost 30 years of working for the NMRA. I was just worn out. Yeah. And having retired and moved to a fantastic place for for fishing and and just outdoor life i have sort of i just knew that in my heart that i couldn't give it the 120 percent uh which it needed because i i didn't really at one point um you know if you do a lot of traveling you know it it starts to wear on you and the travel from up here where I live now currently is, you know, it's two and a half hours to the closest airport drive. And, and the, the travel just gets to you after a while. And there's a lot of traveling uh, um, that you have to do as, as the president and so forth. So I thought, no, I'm, I don't think I would serve the NMRA members well by, by doing that. So, uh, um, I backed off and basically retired from that aspect of, of the NMRA. Okay. So what is your current involvement uh, with the NMRA? What do you, well, are you still active in it or, or what do you do? I, I am. There is a program called Modeling with the Masters. Mm-hmm. And what that program is, is basically a group of master model railroaders who sit down and teach members uh, for five hours a hands-on program. And sometimes we build a laser-cut building. Sometimes we build trees. Sometimes we build little bridges or whatever the project is. And and usually we have four um, MMRs uh, in a class, and we – we give a little presentation on how you can build it, and then we just let the modelers go. They bring their own tools and, and so forth, and we go around the whole room um, assisting them and, and giving them tips on how to do things. And at the end of the five hours, they usually walk away with a completed project. Mm. Um, I came up with this idea um, way back in 1998 when I was at a convention and a guy said to me, you know, he's running through the the uh, slide presentation. It wasn't even PowerPoint at that point. 
he said, this is how you do it. And it's easy. And everybody kind of looked at each other and we'll go, okay. Uh, and I thought, there's got to be a better way. you got to be able to show people so the light goes on. Not everybody learns by just, you know, reading something. And uh, I came back with that idea and I talked to uh, Pete Moffat, who at the time was the Achievement Program Director for all of the MRA. And Pete is a fantastic uh, modeler and was one of my mentors uh, to become an MMR. He him and I sat down and we said, you know, this would help encourage the AP department. It would help encourage modelers and so forth. So um, we, I developed this program and we presented it to the NMRA. And they said, okay, let's do it in, I think it was Long Beach in 1996. That's how long ago this was. Mm-hmm. And the word got out that we were going to charge for a clinic. Well, we weren't really charging for the clinic. We were charging for the materials. And everybody got all excited and people were all in a tether. And so we canceled it. We didn't do it in in the convention. And about a year later, I came up with the idea of doing it as a separate weekend. We would just invite people down. And um, I talked to the... uh, director at that time of the of the headquarters, the manager of the headquarters building in Chattanooga and and they said, oh, you could have our whole basement, we can use that as a classroom we got a hotel close by, we'll get a school bus to take everybody back and forth I said, oh, that works so anyway, we set it all up and we were hoping to maybe get 20, 20 people to fly in and come to this course for the weekend well, we ended up with uh, 45 people flying in wow. <laughs> and uh, and four instructors. So we started on the Thursday night. Everybody got there Thursday. Thursday night at the hotel, we had rented the meeting room, and we had everybody in there, and we, we had a great sort of introduction, and uh, everybody introduced themselves, and everybody was from all over the country. It was quite, a, quite an amazing thing, actually all over North America. The instructors were for that were uh, myself, Alan McClellan of the V&O fame, mm-hmm. uh, and Al Booz um, from uh, Texas, and Pete Moffat. So we ran through what we'd be doing on Friday, and for the whole program, really. Friday uh, morning came, the bus showed up, we got all on the bus, we t- went over to the NMRA headquarters, into the basement, and we had... The instructors had been there the day before and set up everything, and we uh, we had spray paint booths. We had all kinds of neat stuff, and the really cool thing was at the back parking lot of the old NMRA headquarters was the T- TVRM, I guess it's called, the Tennessee Valley Railroad Museum. Oh, and yeah. they had all kinds of stuff, and they also had ran excursions, and just past that was the Norfolk Southern Main Line. And because we did this in the spring, it was nice and warm, and we had these big double doors in the basement open, and we could watch all the railroading out the back door as well. And uh, we had set it up that uh, we had at lunch, we pulled uh, or we had a break, and um, nobody had to go anywhere. We had the lunch all catered. Uh, on uh, on Friday 
for lunch and then saturday night we all went out for dinner and then saturday night we were back in the uh, or friday night i'm sorry we were back in the hotel uh getting prepared for saturday's uh, uh clinics and then saturday again we did a catered uh, lunch and then we all went out saturday night and then went back to the hotel meeting room and had a little um sort of farewell um dessert thing and coffee and um we said goodbye to everybody but uh it was basically model railroading from 7:30 in the morning till 11 at night for for three nights. Wow! And um, we charged uh, 3.95 per person, and that included all your kits, your lunches, and half your hotel. Oh so my word! It, yeah, it was a great deal. Yeah. Um, you could come and uh, you know if you wanted a separate room, um, you didn't want a room with somebody, then you paid extra, but. Uh, mm. Um, everybody uh, just had a great time and they all wanted to know when the next one was so we said well I don't know <laughs> so we <laughs> did so for the first four years of Mono and the Masters we did one every six months in Chattanooga oh and we were we we had basically sold out we we couldn't get it matter of fact we started limiting it to to 28 people because we we it was just too overwhelming with 40 for four instructors yeah it just went over so well and then unfortunately in uh, uh when 9 11 struck we were actually going to denver and we had a lot of people cancel out and we were going to cancel the denver uh um long of the master but it happened that we were everybody was allowed to fly and we ended up with about 18 in denver and we just had a terrific time and we were able to do a operating session on doug geiger's railroad and and uh we did an operating session on the saturday night and that was about six hours and it was absolutely fantastic we had a, such a great time nobody wanted to leave but uh we did leave and uh that was a success. And then 2003, uh, the convention was in Toronto, and I was the uh, vice chairman of the convention. And I said, "Damn it, we're going to do the <laughs> we're going to do the the mine with the masters at the convention." It was sold out. You could not get a seat um, wow. at that convention. And then we we. Uh, started the cost of doing these separate weekends was getting so high because of the hotel prices and the travel cost that we decided that we would just go with the with the national conventions and uh, since 2003 um, we've done every single convention and generally you cannot get a seat people are like who don't have tickets will wait in line with their toolboxes and if somebody doesn't show up, then we we, we allow them to come in. But uh, it's it's just been a phenomenal uh, program, and so I've been running that uh, since 1998, I guess it was. And um, this convention in Salt Lake City this past summer, I passed a torch to uh, one of our instructors called Jim Gore. And Jim is a fantastic modeler out of uh, Florida, and um, 
I've made him the manager and and I'm just an instructor now and uh, I'm going to do the next two uh, conventions and then we'll see what happens. I'm sort of uh, running out of steam on that as well. So, sure, yeah, that's a lot uh, of time to be involved with that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but I think Jim Jim will do a fantastic job, and he's very much in tune to to what um, I set out as as whether where the program should go. Now, one of the things that we are doing that we've been asked to do is do a lot more regional stuff. Um, so we're trying to get more instructors to come out and get certified as a Hmong of the Masters, even though if you're an MMR, you can't just go out and call it a Hmong of the Masters clinic. It it doesn't happen that way. Uh, matter of fact, Hmong of the Masters has even been trademarked and, and uh, copyrighted, so you can't just go out and do it. So what we're doing is certifying uh, instructors. Uh, anybody who wants to be an instructor can can come and put in some time and, and get certified. And we're just coming out with some new guidelines uh, on how that will happen because we have a number of regions will ask us to come out and put it on for them. I was out in the TLR Midwest region in the spring uh, in um, – in Wisconsin, I did uh, uh, four clinics for them. Um, I've been to oh the Pacific Southwest re- or South region. I have done about four for them. The Pacific Coast region, I've done two or three for them. Um, the Niagara Frontier region, of course, my home region, I've done two or three for them. So there was also one in the PNR, which is the Pacific Northwest. Uh, region out in BC and uh, one of our instructors Fred Heaton from Winnipeg was going out there and he did uh, a modeling master's class so we're trying to get it spread out to as many modelers as we can not just those who can attend a national that's fantastic so one term that you've been sort of throwing around there was is MMR can you Tell me what an MMR is and how one becomes an MMR. Well, a Master Model Railroader. It is a NMRA designation that you you earn through the Achievement Program. Master certificates in 10 subjects. One is a Master Car Builder. One is Electrical. One is Author. One is Service to the Hobby. Another one is uh, master structure builder. Another one is track work and so forth. And there's uh, different criteria in each one, such as in the car master, to become a master car builder, you must build um, eight cars and one must be a passenger car. And those all have to win merit. Now, how do you win a merit? Well, you take your model or have your model judged in a uh, achievement program contest. Now, I shouldn't say achievement program contest. That's a misnomer. Achievement program judging is where they judge the car just strictly on points. And there's a there's a form that you can look at and how the models are judged and so forth. And the judges will judge your model uh, according to that form and award you points. The maximum points you can get is 125. 
And to get a merit, you've got to get 70% of that or 87 and a half points. So once your model is judged and you get your 87 and a half points or over, then you get a, um, a merit for that model. When you have eight merits for cars, then you became a master car builder. So now you're down one certificate. You've done one certificate. Volunteer is, is an excellent one. You get so many units. I think it's uh, two or three units a month per per activity you do. So um, if you volunteer at your local division taking tickets, hey, you get two points. You get, you know, so that becomes a pretty easy certificate to to acquire as long as you put in some time and, and volunteer. I mean, you need, I believe it's 60 units or 60 points for that. So then you can become an association volunteer and you get your certificate. So as you you get your certificates, once you have seven out of the possible 10 categories. So if you don't want to build a, a, a locomotive, you don't have to. You just have to get something else as a merit so or as a certificate. So once you have seven certificates, you can apply to become a master model railroader, and that's pretty well automatic. You've gained your uh, requirements. Now, one of the things when you sign on that you have become a master model railroader, one of the things in the little... I won't say contract, but in the agreement, is that be, by becoming a master model railroader, you are willing to share your talents and your expertise with all modelers. And I found that to be a great thing. It's it's you're basically signing on the dotted line when you get your certificate that you will help others, and I think that's terrific. That's interesting, and. Um You've done that. Uh, I would say on my own personal basis, one of the reasons I uh, rejoined the NMRA several years ago was through a discussion that I had with you uh, through the Internet. I don't know whether you remember that or not, but uh, I was sort of waffling back and forth about joining the NMRA again. And uh, your encouragement, I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. So you are definitely uh, fulfilling your end of the agreement. <laughs> well, thank you. I had a, quite a discussion with a number of uh, uh, members out in the East Coast because the NMRA had kind of sort of disappeared out there. Yes. And uh, But with with good guys like Steve McMullen and a mm. few other fellows out there, they've really revived that. And, uh, you know, I always, I always say the NMRA is like a health club. You know, you join a health club, but if you don't go and use it, you're not going to get any benefit from it. That's right. And I think if you go out and 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 be active with with modelers and be active uh, with with the NMRA, you'll really get a lot out of it. Now, some people say it's sort of like you know uh, Canadian Blood Services or or uh, any of the you know the Red Cross. You you give blood and it will help somebody and you know will further cause human uh, element of, of life but in the animary is somewhat like that too we you know you pay your dues and if you say well i'm not getting anything out of it but you actually are those dues go to so many things such as standards and and so forth that are helping the model industry develop new products and stuff in 
number of times when I was doing one with the Masters in Chattanooga, we had the Anna Maria Library there. And you would be hard-pressed not to find somebody there from one of the manufacturers not looking up and researching a new product information there, such as, you know, a Santa Fe engine, uh, what was the size, where, where are they going to get this information while well, they got it from the Annemarie Library. You know, it, it was amazing how many products uh, came out of the information that was held by the Annemarie. That's interesting. Now, uh, you are obviously sold on the NMRA, so am I. That's why I got involved uh, with uh, resurrecting the uh, the division out here on the East Coast. Um, what do you feel? Because a lot of people uh, talk about the NMRA and declining membership and all this other kind of stuff. What do you think the NMRA needs today to bring us into the future? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I think one of the one of the big problems is that railroading uh, the prototype they have kept people away because of security and so forth. So a lot of people are not uh, younger people especially are not exposed to railroading and prime example was here I was as a little kid going next to a yard and basically seeing all these things you can't do that anymore <laughs> they just hmm. won't, won't allow it the world has changed but to see railroading I think that would be would be a, a big thing and and one of the things that I've noticed and and this is in general and in, in I guess um, the social habits is there's not a lot of people building things. I remember as a little guy, my brother, my dad would be building something and he went out and bought us each a hammer and some nails and he'd just give us a piece of two by four and we would bang away. There's a lot of kids um, that have no idea how to hit a hammer and a nail. Um, they just, you know, they're on the computer. They're technique guys. Oh, I'll hire somebody to do that. And that's where I think socially we've kind of lost that building appetite. And and model railroading is a is a fantastic element for for doing that. You you have to be you have to be a little bit into woodworking to build the layout itself, the benchwork, and then you have to be a little bit of a um, sort of an engineer to lay the track and then you have to become an electrical engineer to, to wire it and then you have to be know a little bit about geology to do the scenery um it is a fantastically diverse hobby and i wish we could get younger people to put down their phones and get into this now when my one son was younger and he would come out to the train shows just as dcc was really starting to come into effect one of our clubs that i belong to ran just analog and they just had you know the power packs and you'd have to wait your turn in order to run your train because you were on one loop and he would say uh I get like half an hour to run my train and I'm there all day. And then he says, that's boring then. And he says, if the other guys, this other club that I belong to were going, they were DCC and they would run as many trains as they could almost put on the track. 
And he says, if, and they were called the mob, um, which stood for Mississauga, Oakville, Burlington. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, if the mob's going, I will go because I can run trains all day. Right. And Annie says, I get to use the computer, which he meant is the DCC unit. Mm. And that was interesting to him. Now, you know, all these maker fairs, all of a sudden these kids, it's it's different building. You know, it's not a hammer and nail like I did, or maybe you did. It's these maker fairs where they're on the computer and this thing is 3D printing what they've designed. Right. If we could get those kids into railroading, they could be building buildings, they could be doing cars in 3D, and it would run. And I think that would be just an absolute uh, fantastic marriage of, of young um, into the hobby. Um, so is there a simple answer? I don't know if there is. And the decline is the overall decline in hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, I know up here we have a stained glass group. We have a pottery group. We have, And they all have said boy, we can't get some of the younger people in. Now, when I go to train shows, there are tons of young people there. They're interested, but they're very specific. Some are into prototype models. They don't even have a layout, but they'll spend hours just building a car. They'll spend... So if we could get them also involved and say, hey, you're going to be our car guy or whatever at a club, I think we could get more young people involved. Now, you know, the cost of of uh, everything today for young people is hard. It's, uh, you know, most most families, uh, you know, mom and dad are working, and uh, it's railroading is, you know, is something we we try and do, but it's, it's the cost of living. So it's hard. It's a... I don't know if there's one simple answer, but I certainly would love to see more young people and, and the hobby growing. I don't think it's dying as fast as a lot of people think it is. Um, I agree. I, I really don't see it that way. And I think the other thing, people have to get excited. Um, I remember a number of years ago, we used to have 200 people come to a division meet. Because it was exciting, it was fun, it was it. There was really a lot of interest because it was an interesting program. When the fellow who was running it um, left, and uh, another fellow took over, he wasn't as dynamic. It showed in the in the response to the division. So, I think if you can have an exciting program and really excite people you can get people out very good i agree with you um that's one of the best uh, descriptions of uh how I'll, how we could move this hobby into the future i think i've ever heard so that's that's excellent well clark we've had a, a wonderful conversation hearing you tell me all about this has been absolutely fantastic i i want to there's much more i could ask you we could probably talk all afternoon but there's one thing that i would like to end with and it's the same question i asked steve mcmullen the current president of the nmra canada and maybe you've heard of the term elevator pitch 
a tool used in sales, and the idea is that you have the length of time of an elevator ride to pitch your product, company, or idea to a potential client. So what's your elevator pitch for the NMRA? Well, hi there. You're into model rewarding. How would you like to save some money? Oh, how do I do that, sir? <laughs> mm-hmm. Come and join the NMRA. Let me show you how to build some really cool trees. You don't have to then buy trees at the store for $50, $60 when you can make them for for about 5 And now you can pay for your membership. Not only that, but you get discounts through our discount program. If you buy um, different tools and different materials, you can get all those savings. Well, again, pay for your your membership. So why don't you come out to the NMRA? We're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to learn a lot about model railroading. And you're going to save some money. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Very good. It's just a terrific hobby. And you won't meet any nicer people and really lifelong friends. Excellent. Well, again, I'd like to thank you for your time today, also for your dedication to the hobby and uh, for making it better for us all. Well, Um, thank you very much, and uh, I'm glad you joined. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Clark and I talk so long, we don't have time for anything else this episode. There will be another episode coming your way soon. I hope. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics, or otherwise want to get in touch, visit the podcast website, hotboxpodcast.ca, or reach me by email, gregw66 at hotboxpodcast.ca. And in case I don't get one out before Christmas, I wish you all, on behalf of the Eastern Canada Division of the NMRA, a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Keep your wheels on the track. <laughs>